Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. Everybody wants their life to mean something. We're built to make a difference in our world. But it's pretty easy to get so caught up in the everyday stuff of life, like broken cars and broken lives and broken politics and broken everything, that life just tends to slip away. I think we can learn a lot from Jesus when it comes to making your life mean something. No matter how chaotic the day has been, no matter how big the crowd of people waiting in line screaming for attention is, regardless of everybody else's expectations for your life, we can learn a lot about how to make a difference. It was like everybody else in Jesus' life tended to fade into the background except for the one person right in front of him. And that one was the only one that mattered. I imagine it kind of looked like this. You've got a crowd all around, but there's one person that stands out. Jesus made a difference in people's life, one at a time. There's this image of, of starfish on a beach. I don't know whether you've seen this many starfish or not. You probably heard some variation of the famous story by Lauren Isley. I think it was called the Star Thrower or something like that, and it didn't have anything to do with ninjas. A storm apparently blew through and left hundreds of starfish on the beach, the story goes, where they'd soon either be eaten or else dried up by the sun. There was an old guy walking by on the beach, and he saw a little kid bending down and picking up starfish and whipping them back into the water, kind of like a frisbee. He says, you're wasting your time, kid. There's too many of them to make any difference. And if you've read the story or heard it before, you know the little kid's answer. He just looks at him, throws another starfish back in the water, and says, well, I made a difference to that one. Jesus made a difference in his life and in the life of those whom he touched and loved, one at a time. And that's the theme of the series that we'll go through for the next few weeks, is how we can be like Jesus and make a difference in people's lives, but his pattern will be what we need to follow. It happens one at a time. Now, there was one of his followers named Luke that would tell a story that illustrated that very thing. It was in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40 and following, talks about how Jesus got back to Galilee, and when he did, it happened, as it usually did, that there was a crowd that welcomed him because everyone was waiting for him. There was one guy named Jairus who was a synagogue leader who came to Jesus and he fell at his feet, begging him to come to his house because his only daughter, about 12 years old, was dying. Now, don't miss what's happening in this story. A crowd is there waiting for Jesus. And one guy stands out. Jairus. And as soon as Jairus steps in front of Jesus, it's like everyone else faded into a blur. What happens next sounds kind of like our life. 
Because after Jesus decides to help him and get involved, he's on his way, it says in verse 42, and the crowds almost crushed him. There's still a crowd of people all around him. And they're pushing in, they're calling for his attention, they're, they're practically suffocating him and everybody who was traveling with him. And that kind of sounds like the, the situation that Mark described during the communion meditation, doesn't it? Sometimes it's just hard to catch your breath because you're being suffocated by everything and everyone that's crowding into your life. But it says then in chapter 8, verse 43 and 44, that in the crowd was a woman who'd been bleeding for almost 12 years. She'd spent everything she had on doctors, but none of them had been able to make her well. And coming up behind Jesus, she reaches out and she touches the very fringe of his robe and immediately the bleeding stops. You see, here's another example of how Jesus focused on the individual. Because remember, he's in a crowd of people that's so overwhelming that they're just being crunched. And in the middle of that, Jesus stops everything in verse 45 and says, Who touched me? Everyone denied it, but Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me for I felt healing power go out from me. And when the woman realized that she could not go unnoticed, man, it's a key phrase, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of her. The whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your family has made you well. Go, excuse me, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter, imagine being reminded of what it meant to be part of a family when you've been untouched by family for more than a decade. Because you're ceremonially considered unclean, that means that you were not allowed to be a part of worship community for over 12 years. In all likelihood, Everything she had had been lost, either in family or even finance. She's been ostracized by the community. There's nothing in her life that remains the same. Now, I want to know this from you. How long have you waited for a prayer to be answered and thought, this is going on way too long? I'm thinking she would understand what that's like. Because most of the time, I really don't want to wait 12 weeks, 12 days. I don't even want to wait 12 hours most of the time. 12 seconds, I could hold my breath that long. And that's usually how long I want to wait for God to answer my prayer. And yet, here this woman is. Do you see how Jesus made a difference? Not by the power that went out from him. Sure, that's there, that's obvious, but... Do you see how he made a difference by just seeing the people that were right there in front of him one at a time? Whether it's this woman or whether it was the guy named Jairus. The demands of the crowd were never ending. But he made his life count in their life one at a time. And that's a pattern that you see over and over. In Matthew 8, Jesus comes down from a mountain, and it says large crowds would follow him 
but his focus was on one leper. John tells the story in chapter 5 about how he goes to Bethesda, where there are crowds of sick people laying by the pool, waiting for a chance to be healed, but his attention is focused on one guy when he says, do you want to get well? Or in Luke chapter 19, Jesus goes to Jericho. People are packing the streets to see him. And he sees one guy. A little guy at that. Zacchaeus. You see, the power of one is what creates compassion in us. And the power of one develops compassion, and that compassion becomes conviction. People who make their life count do it not by complaining about the crowd and its crush, but they do it by getting involved in the individual's life. Compassion becomes conviction when somebody ought to do something becomes, I've got to do something. Another eyewitness, Mark, describes one of those how do you know where to begin days for Jesus? And I'm guessing he had a lot of them. In Mark 1 verse 21, it says that the day starts with Jesus going into the synagogue and he ends up being asked to teach the people, which he's happy to do. I mean, after all, that's one of the reasons why he came was to communicate for God what God wanted for his people. A couple of verses down, it says in verse 23, that in the middle of all of this, a man with an evil spirit comes in, into the middle of their synagogue, and my guess is their synagogue in that village was not the size of this room. It might maybe have been the size of our small chapel out to the side. And in the middle of that space, this guy comes in and he starts yelling accusations because he's demon-possessed, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. Have you come here to destroy us? Now, I guarantee you, I hope that I can guarantee you, that if somebody stands up, comes busting in this door, and says, are you here to destroy us? We'd have some of our security team there to be ready to do something about that. Jesus commands the evil spirit to be quiet and come out of him. And he does. But it doesn't happen quietly. It's not with an apology. It's not with, oh, did I interrupt something? I'm sorry, excuse me. I, I wasn't here. Just No, it, there's a lot more yelling and a lot more shouting before the demon comes out of him. Naturally, everybody's stunned by what's just happened. I mean, you know what you'd be talking about over lunch. If that kind of thing happened here, you wouldn't be talking about Ed or the gorilla video. You'd be talking about that crazy guy that come in and start yelling and, and, and talk about destroying us. That's what happens, and word spreads about Jesus. In verse 29 of Mark 1, it says, At the end of the day, Jesus and the disciples, they go to Peter and Andrew's house, where they're going to have an evening meal together, but they get there, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick, so Jesus restores her health. Now, remember everything that he's been through. Up to that point in time, it's like, okay, one more thing. Sure, why not? After sunset, it says in verse 32, as in long day, full day, evening meal, full tummy, finally get a chance to sit down. Except 
the whole town gathers outside their door. And they gathered outside their door because they had their own sick, they had their own demon-possessed in their family, probably in-laws, and they, they brought them to Jesus because they want, they want him to do for, for them what he did for the guy at the synagogue, right? And typically, these are the type of people who've been waiting longer than they ever thought they should wait, spent more than they ever thought they should spend, been frustrated by those who promised to help them and heal them and couldn't. They don't tend to be quiet and wait patiently for their turn. They came expecting they came ready for, they came even demanding that Jesus come out and do something. That's usually when we tend to ask, God, haven't I done enough already? What do you want to do through me? But maybe the question or the prayer that we offer needs to be, what do you want to do in me in this moment? You see, that's relevant because the work that God does in you is what becomes the work that God will do through you. And that stems from compassion that becomes conviction. Now, how do you let God work through you? Again, still in Mark 1, this time in verse 35, it says it was very early the next morning. After the whole full day, full tummy, can I just sit down and close my eyes for a bit? You know, now full house. Very early the next morning, before daylight, Jesus got up and went to the place where he could be alone and pray. We kind of get that, right? Where you just need to collect your thoughts for a little bit. But you see, Jesus understands the whole concept of in before through. And it helps him make a difference. It would go on to say in verses 36 through 39 that Simon and the others started looking for him. So you can't get a minute by yourself. And that's where Jesus is. And maybe you can identify with how he must have felt because they eventually found him. And they said, everybody's looking for you. What are you doing wasting time here, right? And he replied, we need to go to the towns nearby so that I can tell the good news to those people. That's why I have come. And so Jesus went to their synagogues everywhere in Galilee where he preached and he forced out the demons that they were there. Jesus knew what God wanted to do through him because he started the day allowing God to work in him. So maybe, like was said earlier, before you step into that shower, maybe you need to find something that will allow God to wash the inside. Not just the outside. Maybe we need to be sure to remember to allow God to work in us so that he can work through us. But typically, we don't have time for that because the crowd's waiting and there are people saying, about time, where you been? We've got to get going. Come on, let's go. Typically, at that point, we just want to find the easy button to get through the day. And that's especially true when it comes to making a difference in somebody's life. Hadn't there, isn't there an easier way? 
But you see, life doesn't work that way. Because God's principles of creation and life depend on what happens on the inside first. You can see that illustration and example of that happen in Matthew 13 because Jesus there tells a story about a farmer that's planting seed. The point that Jesus made is how people respond to and accept the Word of God, also known in that story as the seed. And he compared their receptivity to a hardened path, or to rocks, or to out-of-control weeds, or, or to the good stuff, the good soil. God has to be allowed to work in us before he can harvest through us. But we get focused on the results of the harvest as though it's completely unrelated to the soil condition or what goes on with the seed beforehand. We pay attention to the wrong end of things. Now, it's not uncommon. Let's see, this is the end of April, so May, June, probably about six more weeks, unless we get more snow. In about six more weeks, you'll start to see strawberries come into season at least in this part of the country. One of my memories from early on was that mom would load me up because I was, back then I was lower to the ground than I am now, and so she would take me and we would go pick buckets of strawberries at the local U-Pick farm. And it kind of reminds me of how we want God to work. We want a U-Pick relationship with a harvest when really, according to God, it's more like you plant I guarantee you, I, I was kind of excited to get a, a, a bucket because I knew there would be strawberries going in to my mouth about as quick as there was going into the bucket. But I wouldn't have been nearly as excited about going to do that if instead of handing me a, a basket, I was handled a shovel and a, back, a, a pack of seeds to plant. Nobody wants to wait that long, right? We just want to be there for the good stuff at the end. And that's the same thing that we want with God sometimes. We forget that it needs to start with the good stuff and our receptivity of what God's doing in us. Let me share this passage with you in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. God is working in you. He helps you want to do what pleases Him. And He gives you the power to do it. Now, that's the easy-to-read version, because sometimes we need easy, right? The contemporary English version phrases it this way, God's working in you to make you willing and able to obey Him. See, that's kind of the problem. It's usually, in my life, one or the other. I'm either not willing or I'm not able, one, one way or the other. But he says, God can work in you to make you both willing and able. And finally, the New Living Translation says, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about doing what He wants, or the will, or the desire, or the ability, or the power. The one thing that all the translations have is that first phrase. God is working in you. That's the one thing that they all agree on. And it's the one thing that's the hardest thing for us to comprehend. 
Maybe because we don't feel like we're worthy of God working in us. Maybe because we're not really even sure that God does anything after, you know, creating the world, just, you know, here, go, and waiting till it winds down, which is not biblical, but it still is how a lot of us think about God. God is working in you. That's the one repeated truth that makes life count. God works in us so that he can work through us. But for God to work through us, we also need to be involved in the life of others. The night that Jesus was arrested, he'd spent the evening with those who would carry out his legacy. And it says in verse 34 of John 13, I give you a new command, love one another just as I've loved you. They knew what he meant because they were listening to him with freshly washed feet. It was probably still damp between their toes. Because his example had taught them to consider the needs of others and not just what was going on in your life. Jesus had been willing to pick up a basin of water and a towel and kneel down before each one of them. You make your life count in people's lives more at their feet than at the head of the table. To love like Jesus would mean getting close like Jesus, even close to the, to the stinky parts of people. And we've all got stinky feet. And yet Jesus says, let me come close. Let me help you with that. Being with people, being near people doesn't necessarily come naturally to us, especially when there's stinky feet involved. Our instinct is to distance ourselves from the very people who need us most. Now, we're not going to shout out names, thank goodness, but you know the kind of people I'm talking about, the difficult people, the people that make you sigh heavily, the people that make you say things you wish you hadn't said, the people that are draining and exhausting, the people who are just so different, they just don't know what to do or say next. Those kind of people. But when God's working in you, it's so that he can work through you. You're constantly compelled to move in a direction that you don't feel naturally drawn to or comfortable in the middle of. That's because God is moving in us so that he can move us toward the one who needs us. It's in Mark chapter 4. Verse 1 and following. Again, you've got this same scenario laid out over and over and over. As you read through the Gospels, you see this phrase, a large crowd, and it usually involves Jesus. A large crowd gathered to hear him teach. And eventually he tells his disciples that they need to leave the crowd behind and go to the other side of the lake. We need to get away. So they do that. They crawl into the boat. They're crossing the lake. It's late. It's at night. It's dark. And all chaos breaks out as if a large crowd surrounding them hadn't been chaotic enough during the day. 
But the chaos that breaks out that night is a violent storm that hits, so much so that people who, are, who have lived their life on the water are convinced we're going to die. Somebody's got to wake up Jesus. Mark describes what happens in chapter 5 when Jesus does his thing. They get to the other side of the lake. They bail out of the boat. They kiss the ground, I'm guessing. And there's no crowd to meet them. And they're probably okay for a chance to catch their breath. And then they start to look around. And they realize why it's quiet, because it's a cemetery, except it's not really that quiet, because all of a sudden a naked crazy man comes running at them, screaming again. Again, there are people running at Jesus, screaming at him. If that sounds like your life, not the naked part, but the people running at you, screaming at you, Jesus understands what it's like to have people always in your face demanding you've got to do something. The only crowd that gathers around them in that moment after Jesus does what he does, casts out the demon into a herd of pigs, and a herd of pigs runs over a cliff and into the water and drowns. The only time a crowd gathers around is when word gets out of what he's done, and the people who own the pigs decide, we got to find out what happened. And so that crowd gathers around Jesus then, and the only time that the crowd gathers there is because they're angry at him and what he's done, they blame him for killing the pigs and they demand that he leave the region and leave them alone and so Jesus being Jesus he does just that in verse 21 of chapter 5 it says that they got back in a boat they went across the same lake that they'd almost drowned in less than 24 hours before probably less than 12 hours before and when they returned it says that a large crowd was waiting for them can you imagine can you imagine the conversation in the, in between the disciples? Okay, there was a large crowd here. We're doing a good thing. We're teaching. We're healing. People are amazed. And then you say, we got to go. And we go all the way across the lake. In the middle of the night, we almost drown. And there's only one crazy man there. And then, and then we turn right back around, get back in a boat, and go back to the other side of the lake and back to the crowd again. Don't miss the point. God moves in us so that he can move us to find the one person who needs us most. He moved him across the lake in the middle of the night through the storm to get to the one person who really needed Jesus. It's not the only time that God did something like that. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 says it this way. Now the people believed Philip's message. Philip was the guy that was preaching that day. There was a large crowd there. They believed his message about the good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, it says many people and many women and men were being baptized. It's a good day. I mean, there is a revival breaking out. There's no other church word to describe what was happening. Philip has been used by God in a significant way to impact a lot of people. So what's God do right after that? Verse 26 and 27, an angel of the Lord says to Philip, keep preaching. No, I mean, kind of, but a little bit different. He says, I want you to go south 
down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he's probably thinking something like this, at least we would probably think this, man, God must have something really big in mind to take me away from this ministry with this many people that is so successful right now where the hundreds of people are being baptized and changed and he wants me to leave what's really good here for something going on down there. I wonder what it is. And so Philip takes off running to do what God said. And the next time he hears from God, it's to say, see that one guy in a chariot? Catch up to him. I'm guessing Philip had his Nikes on because he caught up to him. But when Philip got to where God told him to go, all he finds is one guy who's already been where he wanted to go, and now he's on his way home. And I don't know about you, but most of the time when I've been where I wanted to go and I'm now on my way home, it's going to be a long time. I just want to get home. But instead of being infatuated with the crowds, Philip focuses on the one guy in front of him. Because that's what Jesus does. So he runs up, gets invited up into the chariot, listens up to his question about Scripture, and then when he does, he speaks up to him about Jesus. And this is what he says in verse 36 and following. While they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the officer, this Ethiopian secretary of the treasurer, he says, look, here's water. What's stopping me from being baptized? And Philip answers and says, if you believe with all of your heart, you can. And the officer says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then the officer commanded the chariot to stop. Both Philip and the officer went down into the water. Philip baptized him, and they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord took Philip away, and he never saw him again, but he continued on his way home full of joy. Hmm. We only see what we're looking for, right? Sometimes we only see the crowd when what we need to do is look for the individual. Sometimes all we see is the risk when what we should be looking for is the reward. You see, God has stories like that planned for any of us. Any of us. Not because we're so good at it, but because He is able to work in any of us who are willing to learn more from Jesus and love more like Jesus so that we end up looking more like Jesus and paying attention to the one that, ha that God has put right in front of us. It was risky for Jesus to leave the crowd, but what a reward of life for the 12-year-old little girl. It was risky for the woman who'd been banished from society to reach out to touch Jesus. But she's rewarded by Jesus' willingness to stop what he was doing for her needs. It was risky for Jesus to leave the crowd for time alone with God. But the reward was that he stays connected with the will of God instead of just the whims of the crowd. It was risky for Jesus to humble himself and wash the disciples' feet because respected rabbis just didn't do that. The reward was that they learned how to lead through serving. It was risky for Jesus to cross the lake in the middle of a storm 
but the reward was the influence of one formerly known as Legion. It was risky for Philip to lead the crowd in the enticement of success for the unknown on a desert road where nobody is. But the reward was the impact on the treasurer of Ethiopia and the difference that he made for the kingdom. Gloria, why don't you and the praise team, that's a different way of saying it from the way I usually do. Why don't you and the praise team join me back up on stage. We may or may not want to be famous, but we want to make our, a difference in our life. We don't want to feel like we've wasted our time and wasted our life. We may or may not want to be on the news. We may or may not want to be ever elected as, to a public office. But what we do want is to know that we've made a difference. Generally speaking, people will stop telling your story within three generations. I mean, there's the people that you grew up with, right? Well, the people that raised you, but they're all dead and gone. So there's your contemporaries. And then there's the next generation, your kids. And the next generation after that, your kids' kids. And more than likely, they'll stop telling your story after that. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldorf Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.